What's up, weirdos? This week, we are talking to the incredible Hallie Tecco. Hallie is the founder of Natalist, a vitamin and all the things fertility company for both men and women. I encourage you all to jump into this episode and be vulnerable with me because I may or may not get a little emotional in the midst of it. I don't know what else to say. I feel like we should just kind of dive right in. So let's get started and let's go. Welcome to Girls Just Want to Have Funds, the weekly podcast that deconstructs the intimidating world of finance. Hosted by Syra Rahman, VP of Finance at HM Bradley, and her partner in crime, Megan McShane, a manager at a Fortune 100 company, and supported by Stockwitz. Girls Just Want to Have Funds will take on the important questions in personal finance that so many of us avoid but also take on a glass of wine or two. Learn more, subscribe to the show, and join Syra and Megan on their no-shame adventure to financial freedom at girlsjustwanna.com. What's up, everyone? Megan and I are here today with the founder of Natalist, Hallie Tecco. Hallie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So if you're ready, we would just like to dive right into the interview. We have so many questions for you. Let's do it. Hallie, it's so nice to meet you. We're so excited to have you. We always ask people, where are you calling in from the world since we're all virtual right now? Yeah, I'm calling in from the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. Beautiful. Summertime. Who doesn't love a summer house? I love that. Okay. So we're going to dive right in. So in our mind, every woman we interview is a heroine in their own regard. That's you. Oh boy. (laughs) And so in your own words, what has been your heroine's journey thus far? Oh, goodness. Short answer or long answer? You choose. So, oh my gosh. So my story starts in Ohio, where I was born and raised, and I'm a first-generation college student, which is something I'm really proud of. Like Sarah, we went to Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio. And immediately after, though, I really wanted to get out of Ohio and kind of go as far as possible. So I took the job offer that got me the farthest away, which was in San Francisco. And I worked in corporate finance for Intel, which is kind of like my first job out of school and had a great experience in Silicon Valley, actually ended up staying there for nine years, which was really, that was really my college, really learning from everyone there and growing kind of my career. I ended up going to business school out east. I went to HBS and kind of furthered my interest in technology and healthcare. And that was really where that intersection is where I kicked off probably the most pivotal part of my career, which was starting a fund called Rock Health, which was really the first VC focused entirely on digital health and ran that out in San Francisco for many years before I left and came back to the East Coast. So my journey is kind of long. Three years ago, I started Natalist, which is my first time as a CPG consumer focused founder and has been a really great journey for me. And it's really a passion project from my interest personally in the fertility space. And along the way, I've been an angel investor. Something I'm really proud of is the amount of women founders that I've supported, a few dozen at this point over the last decade, and being able to fund other amazing women who are building out their dreams. I love that. You talked about kind of a pivot that you made in your career there, right? You were at Intel, you were in the tech bubble in Silicon Valley, love San Francisco, by the way, yay, West Coast. But you talked about making that switch. And a lot of people we do talk to have kind of this moment of a tipping point. Do you remember when you were like, 
it's time. Like I'm passionate about this. Like what was that specific moment if you even remember it? Yeah. Well, so two points. So when I was in business school, I interned at Apple and this was 2010 and the app store was brand new, right? It was maybe a year old. I think they celebrated the one year anniversary of the app store when I was there. And I was pretty much given this category, this healthcare medical category, because there wasn't a lot of activity on it. And so it was like, just give it to the 25-year-old intern, <laughs> um, see what she can do with it. And it wasn't, it wasn't an important category. Really, all of the apps that were coming out were in gaming and lifestyle. And so I frankly was jealous of, I tell the story, the woman who sat next to me, who's now on my board, Linda Kim, she was managing the gaming segment. And I was so jealous because she was working with these developers building these gaming apps that were just incredible. And they were using all the native features of the phone and they were truly like world-class apps, like really well done. And then the apps that were in the healthcare segment were like outsourced to third tier developers that really had just like a kind of a check the box strategy. They were like large hospitals that were like, we need to go mobile. And they didn't really focus on the detail of and the user experience of the app. And so where I saw the opportunity in digital health really came from mobile and recognizing that we do have great developers, we have great technology, but we weren't really crossing that bridge to healthcare. Very siloed. The healthcare system traditionally has been very siloed. And so to me, that was the point. I actually took that thesis and went to a couple of VC funds trying to get a job. No one wanted to hire me. So I started Rock Health and the rest is history. That was kind of my first kind of really pivotal career moment. And then a couple of years ago with Natalist. So I was continuing after I moved to the East Coast. We hired a new CEO for Rock Health, Bill Evans, who continues to run the fund. And I moved into actually teaching. So I was teaching at Columbia Business School and angel investing. And it was a really great setup for me because I was trying to start a family and wanted that flexibility, didn't want a super stressful work environment and wanted to be able to kind of take off when I needed to take off. And I love teaching and I plan to teach again and angel investing I continue to do, but I couldn't get the idea out of my head for Natalist. So I was trying to conceive, took many, many, many years and lots of science to have my now four-year-old son. And I recognized along the way, all these products that I needed, fertility-friendly lube, ovulation tests, prenatal vitamins, they were in separate places in the drugstore. They were all really stodgy, old school products. They felt more like clinical products. They didn't really have the millennial customer in mind. The exact product that really did it for me, that made me decide to start Natalist, is a fertility-friendly lubricant. So most lubricants inhibit the sperm from reaching the egg. And so you actually need a fertility-friendly lube, one without spermicide. And the FDA actually has a classification and you have to get a lube cleared to be fertility-friendly. And the leading fertility-friendly lube was sitting on my nightstand. And it was a picture on the front of this box. It still exists today of this homey looking lady holding a baby. And I get that this is an FDA-cleared medical device. I get it. But it's also a product that I needed in order to have sex and get pregnant. And it's just like, it's, it was unnecessary. The branding was just so far off and so unsexy. And I thought, well, why don't we just start there? Just create a brand that feels more like a beauty product, still has the efficacy and the FDA clearance required for these products, but build them in a way that is kind of like by women, for women. So I had this idea in my head. I bought the domain name, Baby Someday. That was our original name. I like bought it in 2006 and I kind of 
had hoped that I would find another founder who wanted to run the company and I could invest. That was my ideal vision. And I really, I didn't find that company to invest in. I interviewed a few potential founders and I realized like, I'm just going to drive you crazy. I'm going to step on your toes. Like my vision for this company is so clear and so big that I think I just need to be the one to do it. And I remember telling my husband, because we kind of moved to the East Coast to get out of the crazy startup world and to tell him like, I need to start another company was a difficult conversation, but he did eventually support that decision. And so that was to me like, like the second really pivotal moment in my career going from investor to founder is unusual. And it's a lot harder to be a founder than an investor. I'll tell you that. But it's been a really great journey. And I found my ideal role within the company. I actually, our COO became CEO a little less than a year ago. And that's been great because it's kind of freed me up to do what I like to do within a company. And I wasn't built to be CEO. And I know that about myself now. And as the chief women's health officer and president, I'm able to have my hands in a lot of things without managing people and without doing paperwork. Those are the two things that I don't do well. That is so incredible and so amazing in so many ways. So I have to share something super personal. And this is part of my fertility journey that I've been super open about on social media because I feel like not enough women talk about their fertility, particularly because it's so personal, right? Like it's this continual shame cycle as a woman to be incapable of being able to like just so many things that I struggle with in terms of discussing it. So I finally said, screw it. I'm going to start talking to people about my fertility pro- like progress or lack thereof, frankly, which is something that I know you feel as well. And honestly, the weirdest part to me was when Nick and I started, Nick really wants to try one time, which is a terrifying idea to me because I've tried too many times and failed. But I promised him after we got married that we would try one time together. And so we started this like journey together of trying to find stuff for him, like pre prenatal male vitamins and stuff. And that entire market is extremely emasculating and like horrendous. He bought all these strange vitamins that made me so uncomfortable. And I was finally like, we need to just go to Whole Foods and like check this stuff out together. And that entire section is so scary. And like, so I just, I wanted to tell you that we went into Whole Foods couple weeks ago. And I know Natalis just went into Whole Foods and I was so pumped because I was like, how do I get some Natalis? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so rad. And I was standing in front of that section, terrified out of my mind and feeling so uncomfortable because like who wants to be standing in that section as a woman? I just, I don't know. I was not comfortable for me. And this guy comes over and he's like, what are you looking for? And I was like, oh, I'm looking for Natalis. Do you guys have that? And he was like, oh my God, you're the third person today that's come in looking for it. We don't have, he was like, it's, it hasn't come in yet. I'm so sorry. I was like, that is so rad. But yeah, I was so pumped that it's like going to be easily accessible to us very soon here in Colorado. So. Okay. I want to talk about male fertility for a second, because that's something that is not discussed enough. So a third of infertility cases are due solely to female factor. A third are due solely to male factor. And a third are kind of a combination. Yet like 99% of the messaging, the products, the conversation is really on the woman. And obviously we're the ones getting pregnant and the egg has a big role in it. But really, I think we undervalue the role that sperm plays. And so we actually started offering male fertility products, which was a big decision for us because we're a women's health company selling men's products. But what we do know is that women in every aspect of the home serves as the chief medical officer. 
we're the ones making the doctor's appointments, we're the ones coordinating the health of our children, and we're making 85% of the purchasing decisions on behalf of our entire family. Everything from picking the Band-Aids to picking the pediatrician. So even though we are a women's health company, we do offer our prenatal for him. We have a sperm test, our lube that could be considered male fertility products, but we know that it's the woman that's actually doing the research and making the purchases most of the time. So we did enter that market about a year ago. And it's good to hear that you know you and your partner are like openly discussing these things because a lot of times it just is assumed that the problem is the woman's problem. And men do have a lot to optimize. And the good thing about sperm is that it regenerates on a regular basis. And so if there are issues that are lifestyle oriented, if they have too much oxidative stress or DNA fragmentation, these are things that can be corrected a lot more easily than, than eggs can be corrected. So, And that, you know what, and he's going to kill me for saying this, but they did make suggestions to him vitamin wise because there were deficiencies that he had when he got tested at my fertility clinic. And I was like, thank God we tested and figured that out. But like, yeah, that wasn't something anyone addressed. They were like, well, he can come in too, which that whole process was also extremely strange, but (laughs) separate, separate story entirely. So that actually leads to my next question for you, Hallie. So Megan and I always joke about like our 20s was for figuring out our life. And now that we're in our 30s, we're trying to figure out everything else. So for both of us kind of figuring out how to start our family from a financial perspective, and I guess from your perspective, what is the first time that we should have started getting financially savvy about a baby? Like what is that oh, trigger and what like what do you what question. do you recommend to people? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the cost of having a baby and then there's the cost of having a child. And the cost of having the baby can go from just medical bills from labor and delivery, which by the way, the average delivery in the US costs more than the average woman makes in a month. So, we have the most expensive delivery and labor cost of like any developed nation. So save for that. It's something that you're going to want to talk to your insurance company early on and understand those benefits and ensure that you're on the right insurance. Sometimes partners have insurance options through each of their employers. And so if you're choosing like, which one do we want to go on, understanding how much is going to be covered there and then also the network. So you want to make sure that you're going to a good hospital. This is the biggest medical event of your life. And you're going to want to go to a hospital and have a doctor that you like. I think that's really important. So understanding the coverage is something I would do straight away. The other thing is if you're in your 20s and you're lucky enough to work for a company that covers fertility preservation, do it. Do it. Like 100% do it as many times as you can. Worst case is that you don't need the eggs and you can get pregnant naturally. But for one in eight couples, they do struggle to conceive. And the need for IVF is increasing every year. We are having children later in our lives. We're putting careers first. And so if you have access to getting egg freezing now, which can be 15, 20 K, if you can get it through your employer, do it. In terms of childcare cost, you know, it really varies on location. If you're living in San Francisco or New York, it's really expensive. If you're living somewhere more modest, if you're in Cleveland, Ohio, it's going to be more reasonable, but trying to get an idea of what sort of childcare you want. If you're comfortable with a nanny or if you'd rather have that socialization within a daycare or preschool, you can really start to get those costs now. So at Natalist, we actually started a book called Parent Plans, which is like a workbook of everything that you really should be discussing with your partner before you have a kid. And so we have an entire section on finances where you can kind of like map out the different 
cost of childcare. And I think it's really important to like sit down and have that plan once you're, you know, you've decided that you're going to have a child with someone. But even before that, like when you're single and you know you want to have kids someday, I think understanding that they're just insanely expensive <laughs> and that you're going to like, you know, you might be thinking you're saving for a house, but that can be spent quickly in a year after having, you know, a expensive birth. If you have to have a C-section, having, you know, childcare, if you're going to go out and have a night nurse, there are so many different things that you might want to have and want to have saved for. So starting early, understanding that they're really expensive in terms of like, Childcare versus nanny. So my son was in school before COVID. That was a great option for us. We ended up actually getting an au pair. We had her for two years. That's kind of the max that you can have the au pair visa. We had such an amazing experience with the au pair program. We're now in the works of getting a new au pair. I highly recommend parents, especially if you're interested in your child learning a second language. My four-year-old is now fluent in Mandarin, which is super cool. It has been like one of the best parenting decisions that we made. We have live-in childcare and it's, you know, much more affordable than, you know, some other options of like a US nanny, for instance. So much to unpack there. Um, yeah. I want to take <laughs> like 10. No, no, no. I love it. I want to take like 10 steps back. So you mentioned something I didn't even think about to tell you the truth. And I work for Microsoft, which is a really nice company that offers really good medical insurance. What kind of questions would I ask them about? you know, me or my my partner, even like, how do I breach that subject? I mean, you go into your, you know, I'm going to sound really silly right now and whatever. But you know, when you have to sign up for your benefits every year and you need to make sure you're like, I don't even know what to look for or what to read for or any of that information. Sometimes it can be so overwhelming. And so what would your advice be for someone, let's say in my position or working at another great company that offers great medical insurance you know, I'm thinking five years from now, I want to have a kid. How do I prep for that now? And what questions do I ask? So I find health plans indecipherable. It's nearly impossible to understand what you're getting. That is a business opportunity for someone who can put those plans into plain English for people. I know Stride Health is doing that for the independent, like freelance worker group, but I don't know if anybody's doing that for large companies. Here's what I would do if I were you. I would find someone who you trust that is a parent at Microsoft and ask them and say, you know, did you do the research? So, you know, you know, that person who does all the research for like the right fridge, the right TV, the right car, that person, if you have someone like that, that's a trusted confidant within your department or that you've worked with, I would ask them if whatever plan that they were on, I don't know how many options you have, but what it covered, what it didn't cover, if they would have any suggestions for you. Because I, I mean, otherwise you're going to have to read through those plans and that sounds... I know. I, you know what? I probably should. Syra's like, read the details. She I keeps know. telling I me that. I keep telling you to read the fine print. <laughs> this is actually super topical for me right now because we're in open enrollment for our health insurance. So I need to like figure that out ASAP. I think that... I, I don't know. I need to talk to our HR gal to figure out exactly when that ends. But I mean, wow, I have so much homework to do tonight. So Hallie, what advice would you give first-time parents, and what advice would you give parents that are struggling to have a child? Goodness. First-time parents, if you can afford it, get a night nurse. That is like the most, <laughs> the most privileged advice I can get. But I was going to school, getting my second master's full-time and starting Natalist when my son 
was young. And for me, having a few nights a week where I knew I could get sleep, like directly benefited my ability to parent and work. So that was something that like was a good investment for me. If it's something that you can afford, if you're in that place in your career, I would highly recommend a night nurse at least, you know, once a week is really a treat. You know, having conversations before you become a parent with your partner, I think is really important. It is extremely life-changing to bring a new human into the world. And having, I think especially for women who tend to be the ones who take on additional caregiving responsibilities, if you're fine with that, great. But if you really want equitable parenting experience, I think having frank conversations about that, how you can avoid the pitfalls of taking on an unreasonable amount of work at home of domestic labor, especially, you know, since COVID, it's gotten even worse, but having those conversations. And it's actually, there's very solid research that shows when men can take paternity leave and in the early, like first few weeks of parenthood are able to contribute, then it sets the tone for the child's entire life. And it's the child's health is better off. The parents are happier. Like those first few weeks are super critical. And if your partner works somewhere, if you have a male partner and they work somewhere where they don't get leave, you need to talk to them about talking to their boss about how to get some sort of, you know, extended PTO, borrowing time, whatever it is. Those first few weeks are so critical for starting and like setting the tone for the child's entire life. So I think that's a a really important conversation to have because you, you know, your mat leave is very clear. There are some states that have, I think Massachusetts and California right now are the two big states that have paternity leave requirements. A lot of states have it where it could be unpaid. Some have it where it paid, some have it not at all, but having an understanding of what those first few weeks look like because you'll be like super frazzled and it's very intense and it's amazing and it's beautiful, but it's really intense. And you want to make sure that your partner is able to do and contribute what they can. And then the second part of the question, well, any follow-ups there? Should we go to the second part of the question? People struggling. Yeah, no, let's dive right into the people struggling. Yeah. So, you know, I struggled for many years and I still do. We've been trying to have a second and I've been through far too many rounds of IVF. I would say most people get pregnant within a year of trying, like 90% of people get pregnant within a year of trying. However, that's a really long time. If you want a baby and you're trying month over month and you're getting negative pregnancy tests month over month, like it's easy for the, you know, OBs to say like, wait a year and then I'll refer you. It's harder to be the patient that wants to have a baby that can't wait that year. And so I do think that there are ways to remove some likely roadblocks that could be preventing you from getting pregnant faster. I think the very first is just truly understanding your body's rhythms and understanding if you are ovulating. This is, you know, pretty simple using ovulation tests, using BBT or cervical mucus tracking. Google it. It's pretty, all the information is out there, but really understanding like, are you ovulating? Because if you're not, then that's a problem that your doctor can help you solve. I think ensuring that your body is prepared for pregnancy, ensuring that you are on a good prenatal, that you're getting enough DHA and folate and choline. These are some of the most important critical nutrients for fetal development, making sure that your body is ready for pregnancy. You can get your partner a sperm test at any time. It could just be that you know, his swimmers are too slow or (laughs) they aren't there. There are a lot of, as I said, a third of cases of infertility are solely due to male reasons and male fertility test is now available 
pretty easy at home. We sell it at natalist.com. So understanding that it's like 130 bucks to kind of know the five parameters of sperm health. Those are kind of the things that you can do early on. If your doctor will not refer you because your doctor doesn't think that to a fertility specialist because your doctor doesn't think that you've been trying long enough, but you suspect that something is wrong, I would go see a specialist yourself. You don't have to have a referral to see an REI, that's a reproductive endocrinologist, that is a fertility specialist. You can get an OB referral, but you can go directly as well. They would be happy to take your business. So if you suspect that something's wrong, if you have infertility in your family, if you have an irregular period, then I wouldn't wait the full year to go talk to a specialist. I would just go directly to the specialist and you can get a fertility workup and they'll look at kind of the common issues that plague, you know, most people, which could be like, are your tubes blocked? You know, what's your ovarian reserve? Things like that, that at least you can get that checked out as soon as possible. So many great resources. I'm like jotting them (laughs) down on the side over here. Sai always makes fun of me, but I take notes because I'm learning a lot. You guys are both going through different stages of fertility. Have you guys, I'm asking both of you actually, have you guys found, because you you are so vocal, Sai, and Hallie, you as well, but there's an emotional toll, I think, on every woman and man that are going through this and trying. Have you guys found good communities or outlets that other people could reach out to or tap into that are going through similar things? So, you know, in the beginning of my journey, I found a lot of support on Facebook groups, just being able to ask questions, being able to say like, hey, here are my blood levels. Like, does this look normal? Did this work for you? And that was really helpful then just to have women who were going through it at the same time. Now I feel like I'm on just like this next level infertile phase where those groups are actually triggering to me now because most of those women will do IVF and get pregnant. And I've had seven miscarriages, nothing works. And so I'm kind of at the point where like, I just try to keep my thoughts and my conversations around infertility between my husband, me and my doctor, because I go sometimes go in those groups and women are like, oh, here's my beta. That's like the first number you get after you do an embryo transfer. And like, oh, it's not going to work, blah, blah, blah. And then it like works. And you're just like, it's going to work for you. It's, it's not, It never works for me, but it's going to work for you. And it can be very triggering for me. I feel like, you know, I've just been at this way too long. So, and then it's, you know, it's hard for me to work in the fertility space and be thinking about it all the time because it's just been an impossible journey for me. And my husband is extremely private. And if it were up to him, no one would know anything. We kind of have you know, compromised on what we think is, you know, for me, I want to share enough that I can help other women, but there's some of this that is my son's journey and not mine. And there are parts of our story that I want him to hear before the internet knows. And so I tend to be kind of vague when I talk about things that are more related to him than me. And so that's kind of how I've handled it is I have a close group of friends who know every detail, know every transfer, know everything. And that's really where I find my support. And they are girlfriends that have kind of gone through everything as well. And there are plenty of them, unfortunately. I mean, if you're not dealing with infertility, you have friends who are. And if you do unfortunately go through infertility, there will be friends who I had one of my closest girlfriends who I had no idea what she had gone through. She had two kids. I thought like, you know, everything was perfect for her. But as I started opening up to her about what we were going through, she went through a very similar journey and she just 
didn't tell anybody, including her parents. I was the first person that she told some of the very intimate details of her infertility journey. And so I think, you know, some people find very detailed blog posts about it to be very therapeutic for them. And that's great. And other people like myself, where I am now on my journey, I find having a few friends who know everything and know that it's been shitty to me. That is more therapeutic to me. And I have a therapist too. And I think that's really important for people dealing with infertility. I, you know, veg out with my therapist all the time on this stuff. So gosh, I... I'm kind of in the same boat as Hallie. I have a hard time talking within communities of other people that face infertility because I feel like I have failed many, many, many times as well. And it's like every single time it's an additional scar and then you watch somebody else that makes progressions and it hurts because like you're like literally what is wrong with my body when the percentages say that I should be pregnant by now. I should have been able to have a kid by now, right? So it's hard. It's hard to have that conversation. My sister knew about every single time I never once shared with my parents because my parents would have killed me if they had known that I was trying to get pregnant when I was completely single. I suffered a lot on my own through that because I didn't have a partner. I, for all of those times, with the exception of one time when I was married. So it's one of those. And I want to talk about that because I have so many girlfriends now that are pursuing single motherhood and that's worth a conversation. Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of the thing, right? Like when you are on an island, there's still a stigma, at least in traditional finance, perhaps not in fintech as much, but in traditional finance, you hide your pregnancy until the last minute. So imagine like for me, I was working six days a week, 80 to 100 hours trying to get pregnant on the side and then hiding all of the things that I'm going through. Like it is not fun when you are sticking yourself eight to 10 times a day with needles trying to get yourself pregnant. Like I finally started putting that stuff out on Twitter and out on Instagram because I was like, Minipure is, first of all, <laughs> not fun, not fun. You're like refrigerating a bunch of needles inside of your refrigerator. And you know that it's made of like none urine, right? Yes. It's like disgusting. <laughs> it's disgusting. Like when I started researching what I was sticking myself with and then on top of it, because I have autoimmune issues, I'm also sticking myself with like Lovenox, trying to keep myself on blood. Like there were so many things that were just nightmarish about the whole process. Your ovaries are going to the size of like softballs. You're barely able to move. I was napping in the middle of the day trying to like work in between. I mean, the whole process is like, would you have told, so you, when you were trying and you were going to be a single mom, yeah, right. That when were you going to tell your parents? You said you didn't tell your parents. What was the plan there? When I was showing, that's when I was going to, my sister, my sister was like, you know what? This journey is your own. And like, thank God for my sister. I don't know what I would have done without her, but my sister was like, this journey is your own and mom and dad have no say. And if you really want to have a baby, you should have a baby. Sorry, this is going to make me emotional. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's okay. No, this yeah. is a vulnerable, vulnerable subject. And I know it brings up a lot of emotion and pain. But I think what's important for our listeners is to hear you guys both be vulnerable and that like powerful women go through this too. Oh no matter gosh, who yeah. you are, there's something about it. And every person, what I hear you both saying is that every person finds their own outlet, but just know you're not alone. I think some people just feel so alone in in things like this, and it's just not the case. And you can find your own community and your own outlet. And if you're not going to talk about it, that's fine. But don't not talk about it because you fear judgment. Those people who are judging are really shitty people, and you probably want them out of your lives anyways. I think if you are someone who chooses to keep your struggles to yourself, like that's a absolutely valid way to react, but 
make sure you're keeping it to yourself because that privacy is important to you and not because you fear judgment. Absolutely. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to start talking about it because I was like, how many other women are suffering on their own out there and just like not talking about how difficult this is? So yeah, for sure, Hallie, like other single women, like if you are single and you are trying to get pregnant, you you have every right to be talking about it, not talking about it. And frankly, this kind of leads into some of the other questions that we wanted to ask you, Hallie. Like one of my biggest fears was not even having to share it with my parents, but like honestly having to tell my boss because in his brain, it's like there's nobody at home to help me, right? So how would you, as someone that has been a CEO previously, as someone that has started companies, how would you give people advice when they are pregnant and they want to be able to share that with their boss? What advice would you give them? So I think that this work needs to start far before you get pregnant. I think we as women have a lot of power, unused power in the workforce. And when we are choosing jobs, when we're 21, when we're 25, when we're 35, we should be including that in our criteria of where we want to work. And we should demand that these workplaces that want to hire diverse employees, that they are mom-friendly, that they're parent-friendly. Let's be parent-friendly because we need paternity leave too. And if we demand that and we can change that at the top, then when we do get pregnant, hopefully, and we need to go to our boss and tell them there's no fear, there's no worry about losing your position, about not getting that promotion, that you know that your boss will be happy for you because that's the workplace that you helped create. So I think the conversation can be really hard. And for women who have that conversation and are fearful of that conversation, like my heart goes out to you. I'm sorry that there are workplaces that don't make that an obviously celebratory meeting. At Natalist, we do. We just had our first, we're seven people. We just had our first person who through IVF got pregnant. She had her baby earlier this summer and she was on mat leave for 12 weeks. She just got back. We missed her dearly. Losing one person on a seven person team was very difficult, but it was nothing but celebratory. There was no, you know, we knew when she was doing her transfer, you know, we knew the whole way and we're able to create that culture because we're moms and we've all been there. And, and unfortunately that's not the case for a lot of startups and that's not a case for a lot of larger stodgy companies. But I think that there are far fewer people on this that are listening to this that are pregnant than are job seekers. And so we need every job seeker, every woman that is getting a job to ask these questions. How will you support me and other colleagues when we want to become parents? I want to know that about this workplace and use that as a criteria. And if we can create that sort of change at the benefits level to ensure that other people will be taken care of when they get pregnant, when it's your turn, you win at that point. But we all win by pressuring these employers to ensure to have, you know, parent-friendly policies. You mentioned something. Okay. So you're one of your employees just came back from mat leave. Literally on Monday. Oh my God. <laughs> After 12 weeks away. That was- oh Lord. I mean, that's, that's hard. I've had friends. We've all had friends that go, you know, back to work. Like, how do you strike that balance? Like, what advice would you give someone? Because I think some of my friends that have gone back to work after maternity leave almost feel guilty, but they want to work, right? They're like, am I being selfish? Like, what advice would you give someone since you have been through that yourself as a founder, which is another level? But how do you strike that balance and make sure you have those boundaries around your work and personal life? Yeah. I think if you're in a career that is meaningful to you, 
and you enjoy it, then, or if, if you're really relying on that career for economic stability, I think that it's not as big of a, a question. Should I go back? Should I not go back? I think, especially the first part of that, which is if you're in a meaningful career and you enjoy what you do and you want to continue to grow. For me, I was excited to go back. I felt like having, I still had plenty of time with my child every night, late nights, weekends. So I didn't feel like my career was imposing on my ability to be a good parent. In fact, I felt like if I was intellectually stimulated and enjoyed my time Monday through Friday, eight to five, then I am a better parent through that. So you know, I think if you're struggling to go back or if you're questioning to go back, you don't have to. I think taking time off, taking as much time as you want to is great. Like it's your life. I think employers are becoming more kind to seeing gaps on the resume. I don't think it's as like cliche to have a year or two gap on your resume. And I think LinkedIn just changed their options that you can have. There's a stay-at-home mom like option or stay at home parent option for your resume. So you can kind of put that in there because that's still work. You're that. still, you're still doing something. You're not just like at Fiji drinking, you know, to heat <laughs> martinis. Like there's, yeah. there's work that's involved in being a stay at home parent. But again, I think this also goes back to like, before you get pregnant, before you have the baby and before you come back, can we collectively as women and men do more to, push employers to be more family friendly. And then coming back won't be so scary for some people. If you can create workplaces that are more flexible, that have pumping rooms, that enable moms and dads to take off for appointments when they need to without feeling guilty, if you can create that culture of being family friendly before you need to, I think that's the best answer for all of us. I Agree with that so deeply. One of my proudest moments, actually, when I was negotiating with the company I work for now, I said, I'm currently in the process of freezing some eggs and I need you guys to come up with a policy for all, all of our future employees. If Amazing. I jump on. Yeah. Oh, I and love that. You know what? They did. So to anyone that's listening right now, if you are negotiating and you are coming in at the top levels of your company, I implore you to at least attempt to do something for the women of your company, especially if you're a woman, because that that type of representation matters. And our entire company, all of our women, we've now had a conversation about it and about the importance of having the ability to be flexible. So I think that just starts that conversation. And I think it's so, so critical to our future. Hallie, I feel like I've taken away so much. I know Megan was taking physical notes. I feel like I have so much homework now, now that I'm in like the planning phase, because despite the fact that I've been in infertility land for so long, I still, I still have so much to take away. And I'm honestly just so impressed by you, which was one of the reasons we asked you on the show. Like you've taken a real put your money where your mouth is move on advocating for women and infertility. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. If someone wants to put together a list of like, I could see a really awesome spreadsheet of like, here are the different like family friendly perks and then rate like every company. I think that'd be so valuable. And it would put pressure on the companies to just rise up. It's like an ESG, but one level above for companies to figure stuff out for families. Yeah. Another one. What's your miscarriage policy? Does that... Yes. If you lose a family member... At Natalist, we offer three days. I've had to take that far too many times. But we say, if you were to lose a parent, we give you three days. If you were to lose a pregnancy, we're going to give you three days. 
God, that sent chills down my back. Every time I've had that problem, I just have to tell my boss I need to take a couple days off and then they just don't ask questions and it's so uncomfortable. But yes, seriously. Someone create that spreadsheet and share it with us so that we can have employers share what they offer. And then if they're competing then, and now is a really good time for employees. We have the upper hand, right? (laughs) So if we're able to kind of make it more transparent and just normalize parent-friendly policies, then I think that's really going to be where the biggest change can happen. Absolutely. Take back that narrative and yes, say what you need and set your boundaries. We're right here with you. Whoever wants to do that, DM us. Please. <laughs> We're giving you homework if you're listening and folding laundry right now. Okay, cool. This has been so amazing. Thank you so much. It's been Thank so lovely meeting you for real. Likewise. It was fun, fun chatting today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Allie. How are you feeling, Meg? I feel like I've learned a lot. I'm not at the point of thinking about having a baby, but I should be thinking about thinking about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're doing the pre-planning. Yes. I have pre-planning to do. And I think that's okay. I feel good about it. This is one of those episodes I'm going to listen back to and be like, okay, what are some other notes I can take here and actions that I can take to prep myself for when I'm ready to have this convo? Yeah. I feel like I need to have another conversation with Nick about the insurance aspect. It didn't even cross my mind that we should be like comparing and contrasting and figuring that out right now. I also feel like we need to have a very serious conversation about workload. We've touched on it a little bit because I think his expectation is that I'm going to take a little bit more of a backseat so that I can take care of the baby slash babies when we have kids, which is like a whole, yeah, I see you smiling, which is like a whole different thing, right? That is not my MO. So it's a a conversation we have to like (laughs) dive into because that's honestly, there's a contract there, right? There's a there's a relationship contract there that you have to agree upon prior to that baby arriving. Because if that baby arrives and neither of you want to take care of it, you are in for an interesting ride. Exactly. So, yeah. And that was definitely something that was topical. And then the other piece of it is like, gosh, Hallie has had such an incredible journey and a difficult one, frankly. And I'm still emotional about it because I felt her pain and I still feel her pain because I know what that's like having as many miscarriages as I have. And and she was calling all the miscarriages. I was trying to like minimize my pain by just, you know, calling them failed IVF, but it, that's not, it is a miscarriage. It's you go through the grief process and yeah. But what, I mean, some amazing thought starters that her company is doing that other people should really, really do. And maybe even I'm going to put that on you as kind of a leader in, in your industry is bereavement is bereavement, whether it be the loss of a parent or a sibling or a friend or the loss of a potential child. And being able to give people that grace and time to reflect and come back a fuller person is really going to do a company good and have employees that'll be like, wow, they really respect and honor my space. So a lot of good thought starters, honestly. I'm going to look into Microsoft's policy to see what that looks like and maybe start asking some of those questions because I think a lot of people need to realize that you know the reality of infertility and the impact it might have on someone's emotional state. Yeah, I'm... I have a lot of conversations that I need to have internally first, I think, but... Yeah, totally. That's 100% what's going through my head. It's how can I level up and make our culture better, but also start pushing externally to encourage other cultures to to do the same. That equality aspect is so important to me. 
I feel like I need to take a nap after this, Meg. Should we wrap it up? Yeah, honey, we should. This was great. Thank you for, hey, hey, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your story because you know more than anyone, hearing someone that's going through this and listening to this, they'll be like, wow, I'm not alone. So I hope that it impacts somebody in that way because I'm sure it will. So thank you for being open. Thanks, love. Love Love you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Head on over to girlsjustwanna.com where you can subscribe to the show, follow Megan and I on social, or even text us your important financial questions. And remember, there's no shame in asking anything. We'll see you next time on Girls Just Want to Have Funds. Bye.